you want to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, I just want to read a few passages of Scripture as we get started and get ready for communion. For 47 years of my life, I shared a birthday with a very horrible event. Probably many of you don't know that, and if after I share the rest of the story, you will understand, but my birthday is January 22nd, and I was born in 1975. In 1973, January 22nd, Roe v. Wade was passed. And so for 47 years of my life, that was something that every year I was sharing it with that event. Um, as of this year, I no longer have to share my birthday with Roe v. Wade, which represents abortion. Yeah. I'm thankful for that because it is a representation of death. And there's probably nothing more reflective of death in our culture today than the idea, the concept of killing babies in the womb. And uh, scriptures are very clear as it speaks against even, even the offering up of babies to idols um, as a sacrifice. And, and God takes it very seriously. He says in his gospels, he calls the little children to come to him because they're very special in his sight, very important. And so for our nation to embrace for the last 49 years this idea of abortion as being okay has been not okay. And I'm thankful for the change. I know it's not the solution. I know that abortions will still take place, but I'm thankful. And I'm thankful that we, that the government made that decision. And I don't know what it will look like in the future. I think we, we can see, I think through this decision, we see one of two things. We either see how dark man's heart is and how that there's been an uprising of people who are even more hateful because um, babies can't be killed anymore, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But we also see on the other side the the goodness of our Lord and the church. I think the true church is going to be um, united together. I, I, I wanted to bring this up before communion because uh, I, life is the Lord. The Lord is life. Uh, he is the light and the life. And whenever we represent and promote life, we are promoting the Lord. And Deuteronomy chapter number 30 and verse 19, the scripture tells us, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and strength of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them the scripture also tells us in the psalm, if you will turn over to the psalms, in the 139th chapter, the Bible tells us in verse 13, for you have formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. Amen? And we sing this song, all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been good. We look at a text like this and it takes it right back to the womb, doesn't it? 
Takes it right back to right in the, the mother's womb. He goes on to say, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intrinsically woven, woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were founded for me when as yet there was none of them. And then if you'll turn back just a page or two to Psalm 127. The scripture tells us, behold, in verse 3, children are an inheritance from the Lord. Children are a reward from the Lord. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And in opposition to everything that our culture would teach us today, children are a good thing, aren't they? And it's not, uh, it's not, we're not, we're not making that statement because our economic situation is going to be better when we, when we have children, do we? We're making that statement because that's what the Bible, the Word of God teaches us. And if you're basing your, your opinion of whether or not children are good or bad based upon your economic system, you will adopt the world's philosophy. I remember when I was a younger pastor, many, many young couples would come to me and say, Pastor John, we'll have children when we're financially ready. And the problem with that is, is that they're never financially ready. God is the type of God that when we follow his word and obey him, he makes us ready. He equips us when we step out by faith. He says children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man, and I think we could say the woman as well, who has their quiver full of them. Amen? A quiver is just a place where you hold arrows, right? And the more arrows you have in your quiver, the better off you are. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. And I'm not going to put a number on that, but some preachers do. <laughs> I think it's five, but I don't know. I don't know where that number comes from. <laughs> but the idea of it here is, is that children are a blessing from the Lord. The end of verse number five says, he shall, put, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So as we take communion today, I think it's just a special, a special day. It's the 4th of July weekend. We, 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 we're, we're noticing the freedom that we have as a nation. It's a time where we can think about maybe some positive transitions that have taken place. And, and ultimately, we just want to reflect on Christ and what Christ Jesus has done for us. We want, we want to remember this. John, uh, James 1.17 says this, every good thing and every perfect thing comes from above every good thing and every perfect thing comes from above from the father of lights with whom there is no variation nor is there a shadow of turning we've been a few weeks gone and so we are going to do a little bit of review this morning from the book of colossians for those of you who have not been a part of the study um, we want to make sure that you are somewhat up to date on what's going on in the book the book of colossians is somewhat of a mystery it presents to us, it, 
exposes to us, reveals to us a mystery known as the mystery of Christ. In the book of Colossians, we're told it is the mystery of Christ, and it is defined throughout the book. The mystery is, as discussed in the first few weeks, everything in Christ, Christ in you, you in the church. The first two pieces of that are a uh, positional Everything that uh, we have is in Christ. When God sent Christ into this world, he was, he was God in the flesh. There was nothing missing from Christ. Christ was the fullness of God. Everything that we needed was to be found in this man, Jesus Christ. He was sent into this world to bring salvation to his people, to fulfill, if you will, God's purposes in the world. And he fulfills those purposes by dying on the cross, taking upon himself the sins of mankind, satisfying the wrath of God for those sins, and then restoring mankind um, in himself. It's amazing that Christ is, is the fulfillment of all of the things that he set out to accomplish. We're the benefactors of it. He's the fulfillment of it. In Christ, everything was fulfilled that was necessary for man to be restored to God which was Christ's purpose, because Christ was and is the perfect man. Therefore, in him, everything was accomplished that was necessary for man to be restored to God. Where do we fit into that picture? We fit into that picture as benefactors, meaning that God rewards Christ for his work by giving him a people. We're the ones that benefit. The the whole work of Christ, all of the benefits come to us. Even though we accomplished nothing. Even though we did nothing. All we brought to the table was our sins. All we brought to the table was our rebellion. All we brought to the table was our uh, um, anger toward. All we brought to the table was negative. But Christ brings everything to the table that is positive. Everything in Christ and then Christ in you. That is the essence of the gospel. And then the practical piece of it is he's planted us here in the church. The Bible refers to over and over again that Christ is in us, right? So Christ being in us, if he is everything that God requires, then him being in us makes us satisfactory to God. But the Bible also refers to us being in Christ, right? And us being in Christ is a reference to his church. We are the body of Christ. So we've been placed practically into the body of Christ so that we might now carry out the things that he accomplished. We're carrying out the work of Christ so that in 2022, right now, which is where we're living, that people might still see the work of Christ that took place in the first century through the body of Christ. That's where, that's where the church becomes significant because without the church, the world cannot see the work of Christ. It is our role, it is our job, it is your job and your role to manifest to the world around us the work of Christ. Otherwise, it is 2,200 or 2,000 plus years ago, and how many people are going to remember that? 
And how many people are really going to care about that? You know, how many people talk about things that happened 2,000 years ago and say, that's why I live my life, because that happened 2,000 years ago? I'll tell you what's interesting. Very few people do that, but the church always does that. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to be Christ years and years and and maybe even more years after he is gone. We're called to be Christ to the world around us. This is the mystery that is taught to us in the book of Colossians. The last time that we studied this book, we looked at verses 9 through 12, which is the apostle's prayer for his people, for the church. And it is, in essence, that we might accomplish, that the church might live out this mystery. And in order to live out this mystery, there were three things that we looked at that needed to be fulfilled. Number one was we needed to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then remember the Greek word here for filled simply implies somebody that is so consumed with something, with some information, that that information begins to control their actions. That they're full of something so much that it, that it determines, it, it's, uh, I think Galatians gives a really good example of it when it compares it to being drunk. Drunkenness is something where the intoxicating element becomes in control of you, right? So he compares that to being filled with the Spirit. When the Spirit of God, when you're so full of the Spirit, you're so consumed by the Spirit that the Spirit of God begins to control you. And it's only at this point in time that we're able to carry out the work of the Lord. We're able to continue to represent what he came in this world to accomplish. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. Be functioning in the power of his spirit. It talks about that again in verse 9 through 12. It talks about that we are being strengthened by his power and his glorious might. And then the third thing that we need to to know if we're going to accomplish the work that God has called us to is to be thankful for the gift of Christ from the Father. We're to be recognizing that what we have is a gift from God. And again, going back to James, the Bible tells us that every good thing and every perfect thing has come from from God, right? And we have no question, there's, there's a big question in the world today was where all the evil come from. There ought to be no question as to where all the good things come from, because all of the good things come from the Lord. Everything that we have in this life that is good is from God, and we can kneel on our knees at night before we go to bed and say, God, thank you for the things that you have provided for us today that are good. It's a whole other story to discuss what the, where the evil things come from, but we can be assured that everything good that we have comes from God. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And then if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, why do we boast as if we weren't gifted the good things that we have. It's an interesting thing. If you think about today, I, I, I don't watch a lot of news anymore. Matter of fact, I try to avoid watching news because it is very discouraging. 
but there's a new commercial that's on television that says it's a unifying, it's a unifying, uh, it's like we're a united nation or something to that effect. And, and what we're all united around is one word. Does anybody know what the word is? Anybody seen the commercial? No one wants to admit to it, but does anybody know what the word is that we're all to be unified around? It's not a good word. It's not a cuss word, but it's not a good word. Pride. Who said that? Who's going to take credit for <laughs> No one's taking credit for it. Pride is the one thing that we're to be united around. What's amazing is, is the Proverbs tells us that only by pride cometh contention and strife, right? And the Bible tells us if we're going to be united, it's going to be through humility and not through pride. All it shows us is that the world is backwards in their thinking on what unites people. Pride does not unite people. Humility unites people. Emptiness, brokenness, that's what unites people. Not rising up and saying, we're going to have our way, we're going to have our will, we're going to get what we want. That's not what unifies people. That's what destroys people. That's what destroys nations. That's what destroys leadership. That's what destroys all of these things. We come to our text this morning here at the latter part of... um, chapter one, or maybe really just the middle of it. And it's going to point us this morning to the preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. The title of the message is for the sake of the son. And the, and the nature of the message is that it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. And as we understand it to be all about Christ, it will lead us into a heart of humility It will lead us into a heart of emptiness and brokenness. It will lead us into a heart of obedience and submission. It will lead us to do whatever God calls us to do. Let's read. If you want to follow along, read with me uh, this passage of Scripture. Beginning in verse 23, the Bible says, He has delivered us, speaking of the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by, through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's a powerful word here, a powerful phrase, that the fullness of God, the divine trinity, was pleased to dwell in Christ, the God-man. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Notice, this is who we were before Christ died for our sins. Romans 5 and verse 8, the Bible says that while we were still in our sins, 
right? Christ died for us. Christ didn't come into this world because there was a redeemable people that were worthy of redemption. Christ came into this world for, for sinners. He came to save the lost. And that's who we were. And we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to claim makes it the reason for Christ to come in ourselves. We were hostile in our minds towards God. We were doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This very short passage of Scripture is the most descriptive passage of Scripture of the divine nature of Christ. There are two other passages of Scripture that would be considered uh, perhaps um, a... uh, perhaps a a way in which you could compare, but this is the most prominent passage of Scripture that relates to the the preeminence of Christ, to the um, exaltedness of Christ. Those two passages of Scripture, you're familiar with them, John chapter number 1, verse 1 down to verse number 18, and then Hebrews chapter number 1, verses 1 through 3. Two passages of Scripture that give us an expression, if you will, of the preeminence of Christ, that teach us and show us how how, uh, surpassing He is of us, how significant He is, how important He is, because it's all about Christ. At the end of the day, it's all about Christ. Everything for a Christian is about Christ. It is that he might be everything to us. That in everything, he said in our text that we read, in everything he might be preeminent. And what we saw as we read through this passage of scripture is you see a number of firsts. It says that he is the firstborn on a few occasions. He is preeminent. He is the firstborn of creation. He is the head of the church and he is... The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. And, and, and in each one of these cases, he's referring to Christ being first, Christ being central, Christ being the most important. And that every area of our lives ought to, ought to be screaming, ought to be yelling that Christ is first, that Christ is the most significant, that Christ is the most important, that Christ is superior and Christ is supreme. It's easy to say those things with our mouth, isn't it? But it's difficult sometimes to reflect those things with how we walk and how we function and how we talk and how we relate to each other and and how we function around lost people and how we function at work. And it's difficult to reflect Christ as being preeminent when we're not in the church, but we're actually out in the world. But he tells us in this text that Christ might be preeminent everywhere. That Christ might be preeminent in everything. That Christ might be preeminent in every situation. That Christ might be significant always in our lives. As we look at this text, we find that the Apostle Paul is arguing against four very significant 
beliefs of the Gnostics of the day. The Gnostics were a first century group of um, religi- a religious group who, like many other false religions, uh, sought to promote a religion of works. In other words, the Gnostics were promoting a religion that elevated mankind, and in their religion of elevating mankind, you naturally are going to minimize Christ. John the Baptist says that I must decrease so that Christ can increase. And any time that the opposite of that is true, where we are increasing, then Christ will always be decreasing. And we can be assured of this, that every religion that promotes humanity, that promotes works, that promotes our significance, our our importance, that promotes our value, that promotes our worthiness, that promotes our ability to accomplish something that makes us worthy of God, that all of those are false religions. They are lies. It is only the truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is everything to what we believe and to our hope in him. Christ is all. In opposition to these false religions, the Apostle Paul is going to argue, and there are four specific ones that I want you to think about as we get into this. The first opposition that the Apostle Paul presents is to the belief that the gospel is intellectual. In other words, that you had to know certain mysteries or experience certain um, uh, hidden things in order to be truly a believer of, uh, uh, truly a, a follower of God. The gospel is intellectual. Jesus is insufficient The physical is irredeemable, and holiness is impossible. You see, the Gnostics adopted what we know of as dualism. They believed that the physical and the spiritual were in opposition to each other. The physical is utterly bad and therefore must be, in the end, annihilated. The spiritual, on the other hand, is utterly good and therefore will go on forever. So the physical is ultimately bad, the spiritual is ultimately good, therefore we are, we are in and of ourselves a divided person. There is nothing good to be had in the flesh, and there's only good to be had in the spirit. So when a person would die under the Gnostics' beliefs, the body would, the body would go into the grave, it would be... It would, decay and be done away with the spirit would live on forever they had no place for a resurrection they had no need for a resurrection matter of fact the gnostics believe a resurrection of the body was a horrific thing they thought of it as grotesque because if the body rose from the dead which is utterly evil they couldn't understand why Many Gnostics of the first century believe that the body is simply a prison for the soul and that one day the soul will be released from the body. There is no eternal use for the body. This is heresy. The Bible is clear that the body will be resurrected and it will be restored and it will be renewed. Two religions that came out of this belief is one is antinomianism. Antinomianism was simply a way of stating it was liberalism. It was against the, the, the word means against the law. And they believed because our flesh was completely evil, there was nothing that we could not do. 
And there was nothing that we should not do. There was no reason to not do whatever we wanted to do because the body would ultimately be annihilated and the spirit would live on and the spirit was utterly good and so it would live on and we would be perfectly fine. And that was only true about those who were intellectual. And can I, can I submit to you that, that there's a lot of our modern day religious religiosity that, that is reflected, that reflects Gnosticism? It's become very intellectual, and it's really not much about relationship anymore. And this is not good. Antinomianism, which was do whatever you want, and it doesn't really matter. And then there was asceticism, which was legalism, which it's interesting that you have two really opposing systems of belief that rise up out of the same Gnosticism. This, this one believed that you really abused your body because it was worthless and, and, and not uh, important in anything. So you, you just, asceticism was like a way of disciplining your body to the point where it, 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 it didn't matter. You, you just, you, you were abusive to yourself. Apostle Paul presents to us the truths, um, not necessarily, he, he does deal, if you, if you want to write this down in chapter number two, verses 18 through 23, he does deal with these, with these beliefs in a um, short way. But what he gets to, what the Apostle Paul gets to right away is the truth. What is the truth? And the Bible says that we will know the truth and the truth will make us free. So it's not always the study of error. It's not always having a deep understanding of what error is. It's sometimes it's knowing the truth. And when you know the truth, the er the error will be self-exposed. I remember I worked at a bank, you know, lots of years ago. And when they were teaching us how to identify counterfeit money, it wasn't by having us handle counterfeit money. They taught us by having us handle the real thing. And they just said, you just, you just touch the real thing over and over and over and over again. And then when you come across the counterfeit, you'll know it right away. And it's the same thing with the word of God. It's, it's, error is not something that we have to be constantly worried about or thinking about or studying. It's, it's studying the truth, knowing the truth, and error will expose itself. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians that he didn't even give one hour. And I don't know that he meant one hour. I think he meant that he didn't even give any time to false teachers. He just didn't have anything to do with them. It was like, I don't even want anything to do with that because it's, it's a waste of my time. It's the truth that is what we need. And so I want to just give you four truths this morning that I believe um, from our text here that I believe will help us understand how to refute these four arguments from the Gnostics. Number one being that the gospel is intellectual. And the argument that the Apostle Paul makes is that the gospel is relational. The gospel is relational. Look what he says here in verse number 11 being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Just notice words that are popping out here. Father, inheritance, saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And we can even go back up to verse number 3. And verse number two, where we see brothers and we see father, we see, this, we see this family development taking place in the text here because the apostle Paul is making it very clear that the gospel is not something that is intellectual, it's something that is relational. The gospel is not about what we know, the gospel is about who we know. 
It is about knowing Christ. It's about knowing Christ, not in an intellectual way in your mind. The Bible says that knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge leads to pride. But it is about knowing Christ in such an intimate way, knowing Christ in such a, a, a real way that, that he, the knowledge of him transforms you into his image. It changes you. It takes you from that old person and makes you into a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anybody be in Christ, being in Christ is being in his church, in his body. If anybody is in his body, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It is, the, it, is, it is knowing Christ in that relational way. The Bible even refers to it like a husband knowing their wife. It's, it is the most intimate of knowing. When you know Christ the way that you know your wife, and I'm not talking about it in an inappropriate way. I'm just saying that there is an intimacy with Christ that is real. And it is the intimacy that we have with Christ that, that fathers and sons and, and brothers, and that they all experience as a, as a part of a family because the gospel is a relational book. The gospel is a relational message. It is interesting to think about what relationship the gospel is truly about. What you will find in this passage of Scripture is the gospel is really about one relationship. The gospel is truly about the relationship that God the Father has with his Son. It is God. It is, it, 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 here's, what the, here's what the text says in verse number 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and, transform, and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. In other words, he's giving us the reason why he is saving us is because he loves Jesus. There's a, there's a father-son love there that is, that is being, that is being uh, bestowed, is being poured out by, by God the Father bringing you and me to Christ as a reward for the sacrifice that he made for our sins. But truly, it's about God's relationship with his son. It's about God's love for his son. It's about God's acceptance of his son. And we get to fit into that by being in Christ. We fit into that. We become a beneficiary or benefactor of that because we are his body. But it is all, listen to me, it, the gospel is all about God's love for Jesus. That's what it's about. God is giving people to Jesus because he loves Jesus so much. And this strips all the responsibility from us to be some kind of special person that God's going to bring into his family because we know so much or we do so much. It's about Jesus. And what we get to do is we get to, we get to say thank you. What we get to do is we get to serve Jesus because we realize that we're a gift to him. We're a reward to him for the sacrifice that he made for our sins. The gospel is a relational is the relational message and the relationship that it's referring to is, is the father's love for the son and the son's obedience and submission to the father. And we, and we, listen, and we partake in that. We're brought into this divine relationship that doesn't make any sense to us. Why would you bring us into a perfect relationship? And, and we think it's for Jesus' sake. 
It's because God loved Jesus so much that he brings people into his family. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness, from the dominance and domain of darkness, and brings us into the kingdom of the son that he loves, of his beloved son. I won't go into a lot of detail. This term, beloved son, is used about 10 times in the New Testament when the two Greek words are combined and connected. It's always used of Christ. Never anybody else is used called the beloved son. We see it when Jesus Christ is transfigured before the apostles and the Father's voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes out and there's a voice from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, it's all about the beloved son. You're a partaker of God's love for the beloved son. And this is why the church has to take what they do seriously because we're meant to carry that into the world. It's interesting because he goes on, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Which is, it is in Christ that we are brought into the kingdom. It is in Christ that we experience forgiveness. And whatever, whatever, remember this, whatever you've done in your life, because it's about Christ, it's about his grace, it's about his forgiveness, no matter what you have done in this life, his, his sacrifice and his acceptance are enough. Right? Listen, you don't have to bring anything to God to be accepted. Jesus brought it all. What you have to do is get in him. Right? It's really simple. You don't become acceptable. Christ was accepted for you. You just become in Christ. He is the beloved son. And we become beloved sons and daughters by being in him not about what we bring to the table there's a love relationship between god the father and the son that makes the gospel a possibility jesus is the restoration of harmony between god and man he broke down the barrier of sin and brought about harmony with the father the father's love for the son as the result of his sacrifice for our sins is why he rewards the son with believers If you read in your Bibles at some point, read John 6. The Bible says that the Father gives us to the Son as a gift. We're given. Anyone who is given to the Son will not be cast out. I invite you to read Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 in your own time. It is is literally a parallel to this. It explains it in different detail. So it it is relational And it is the father's relationship to the son. Under it is relational, note number two, it is for everyone. This idea, what the the Gnostics were presenting was, it was for the intellectuals. Right? Is the gospel for the intellectuals? Is it harder for a man to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven? The gospel is for everyone. It's to be preached in all of the world. 
That's what we're supposed to do. And it is sufficient to bring salvation to the entire world. It is sufficient. It is applicable. It is effective to bring salvation to anyone who believes in Christ and repents of their sins. The individual is simply a recipient. They are not a participant. Whether you're talking about being elite intellectually and therefore God has saved you, or you're talking about being elite in some other way, there is nothing about your eliteness that makes you accepted by God. Listen, what makes you accepted by God is Christ's eliteness. It doesn't matter if it's race, religious, creed, intellect, financial status, goodness, accomplishment of sacraments. It doesn't matter what it is. Some of the most intellectual men of the Bible were said to not understand the truth even though they sought it with all their heart because they were full of themselves and not full of Christ. It is relational. The last thing under it is relational, it is through faith. He says at the end of the text that we read, if indeed you continue in the faith. It is all about faith. Faith in what? It's about faith in Christ. It's about trusting in Christ. It's about a relationship with Christ. It's all about him. The second thing that I want you to consider is the fact that Jesus is sufficient. The Gnostics would want you to believe that Jesus Christ was insufficient. He was insufficient because he was a man. He was made of materials. And the Gnostics believed that the body was, the body was evil. Materials are evil and spirit is good. Because Jesus Christ was a man, had a body, he was insufficient to bring salvation. Here's what the word of God tells us without question, Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. He doesn't even leave room for argument here. He's pretty sufficient, isn't he? He says in verse number 15, he is the image of the invisible God. This goes back to Genesis chapter number one, where God created us as image bearers. We bear the image of God, and we have destroyed the, the, we have destroyed the image of God because we have become fallen and sinful. But Jesus Christ is the bearer in a singular way, in a first way, in a most significant way. Jesus Christ is the bearer of the image of God. He is the image of God. Hebrews chapter number one tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the image of God. He is the exact imprint of God. Because what we know is, is that Jesus is God, isn't he? Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus is sufficient for the task that was planted before him. You're familiar in John 14, Jesus' disciples are conversing with him. He has just told them that he's going to die, he's going to go away, and he doesn't want them to be discouraged. And Philip speaks up and says to him, show us the Father. Show us, show us in, in his mind, show us God. And here's Jesus' response. Have I been with you so long 
and you do not know me? Well, what a, what a great response, right? Lord, show us, show us God. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, I've been with you for three years, three and a half years. You don't, you don't get it? You don't see it? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He is sufficient for salvation. Let's go on reading. He is not only the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean that Jesus Christ was created. It simply means that he is the source of creation. He is the cause of creation. He is the reason of creation. Many times in the Bible, there's a son who is not the firstborn. David is called the firstborn, not because he was the firstborn, but because he was anointed to be the king. He was the chosen one. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, not because he was created, but because he is superior over creation. He is supreme over creation. He goes on to describe it by saying this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God, Jesus Christ is the source of creation. He is the means of creation. And he, is the, and he is the reason for creation. Notice this. All things were created for Christ. All things were created for him. He goes on to say in verse number 17, He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Meaning that Christ is eternal. He had no beginning and no end. We look at his birth as being a a beginning, but Christ's birth was not the beginning. It was a transition. It wasn't the beginning. He was God the Son forever and forever will be God the Son. He holds everything together. He didn't just create the world, but he sustains the world. He keeps it from falling apart The Bible literally calls him, in 2 Thessalonians 2, it calls him the restrainer. He keeps the world from being as wicked as it could be. God holds the world together. If you can imagine, I I pictured it this way. You you see those guys in the athletics, in the the Olympics, and they have those big old hammers in their hands, and and they spin around and spin around and spin around, right? And they get faster and faster. Sometimes if they don't let go, they they dig a hole in the ground. That's not really true, but... (laughs) On the, on the cartoons, that's what they do sometimes. But they spin around, they spin around, they spin around. And what you know is, is once, that, once that hammer is let go of, what's it going to do? It's going to fly, isn't it? And Jesus Christ is the one who's holding onto that hammer, and that hammer is the world. And it's swinging around and swinging around and swinging around. And once he, if he ever chose to let go of it, if it ever were to change just one iota of of an atom to be changed, it would turn, it would take everything and put it into chaos. And Jesus is the one that's holding that together. Not only is he holding the universe together, but the reality of it is, is he's holding your life together. He's holding your family together. He's holding your finances together. 
He is the one who is sustaining all of these things. He is the sustainer, not just the creator. God didn't just create things and then stand off and watch everything take place. He is the one who is sustaining things each day. He is the reason why there is any good in this world at all. It's true. If God were to remove himself from the picture, there would be zero good in this world. So to walk outside and see good things, it's because God is the one who is sustaining those things. He goes on to say, he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead in everyone. And it doesn't mean, again, he was the first to rise from the dead because we know several others that rose from the dead before him. But what it does mean is he is the preeminent one that rose from the dead. He is the one who can make you rise from the dead. He says that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. All of these things point us to the reality that Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is superior. When he offers us something, when he tells us something is true, we can trust it on the basis of all of the things that we read in this text it tells us of the divine nature and the, and the extraordinary power of Christ. And, and we can trust that he is who he says he is. And then we can trust that he can do what he says he can do. So the gospel is relational. Number one, we want to remember that the gospel is relational. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus, you don't need anything else. You don't need to add sacraments to Jesus. You don't need to add good works to Jesus. You don't need to come with a special uh, a gift for Jesus, an exchange for Jesus. Jesus is enough in himself. All you need to do is accept that. That's why the Bible is clear with believe, 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 believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is enough. It's easy, but it's so hard in a world that says you are enough. He goes on in verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. This is the third argument that they make that needs to be refuted in his body of flesh by his death. What Jesus reveals here in this statement is the fact that the physical is redeemable. In other words, it is a physical Jesus, a material Jesus, a Jesus that's material just like we are, a man Jesus, through which redemption will come. It is a material Jesus through which perfection comes. It is a material Jesus through which salvation comes. And it will be a material you that will raise from the dead one day and spend eternity in either a place called heaven or a place called hell. It will be you in your body.
When they tell you that there is no resurrection because there is no use for the material because the material is evil, they are lying to you. That is not biblically accurate. You will rise from the dead. The Bible tells us in John 5, the righteous will rise into everlasting life and the unrighteous will rise to everlasting condemnation. And you will rise physically. You will be in your body. If you go to heaven, you get a new one. Or the Bible calls it a transformed one. If you go to hell, you get your body. Romans 8, 20 through 25, for reference point. In your own time, read it. Listen, the argument that the physical is unredeemable simply is meant to minimize Christ. You have to be able to read between the lines. What they are saying is that Christ is not capable of salvation because he is material. And only the truth helps us know that that's what they're trying to accomplish. The last argument that they tell us and that is answered here in this text is that holiness is impossible. Holiness is impossible. The Bible goes on to refute that by saying... And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind of doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body, by his, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you, what's the next word? Holy. You will be presented, all believers will be presented to God, holy. The Bible even tells us in Romans chapter number 8 that we are being conformed. We are currently, presently being conformed into the image of Christ. And that that work of transforming us or sanctifying us will be brought to completion when we are introduced to God the Father by Christ as holy. You see, by saying that it's impossible for us to be holy minimizes whom? It minimizes the one who is making us holy. And it minimizes the one who is the cause of our holiness. He says that will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In verse 23, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jude 24 and 25 the doxology there in Jude that tells us that the Lord will present us one day as holy to God the Father. We want to remember in closing, one way to identify a false, false teacher, a false prophet, is by evaluating their view of Christ. One way to evaluate your own system of faith is by evaluating your view of Christ. If your system minimizes Christ and maximizes yourself, it is likely a false religion. And it will likely not get you into heaven. If your system maximizes Christ and minimizes self, it is likely the true gospel in the word of God. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is better to say, Your sins are forgiven, 
or to say, rise up and walk. But so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic man, rise up, take up your bed, and go home. And Jesus tells us in this text very clearly, this is just John 12. Jesus tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ did the miracles, taught the things that he taught, so that we might believe that he is capable. And then he tells us in John as well that if I be lifted up, if Christ be lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. If Christ is exalted, if Christ is in the position that he belongs, then he will make things happen. He will make changes. This morning, if you're here with us and you're, maybe you're doubting um, Christ's sufficiency, Maybe you're doubting Christ's purpose. Maybe you're doubting yourself and your ability to enter into his kingdom to be a part of his family. Let me assure you that you bring nothing to the table that will make you worthy of him and Christ has accomplished everything for you. You must just believe. You must embrace and believe what Christ has done for you as being sufficient for salvation. If you're one that's here and you're a Christian, Christ has done everything. What he calls us to is he calls us to an attitude of of thanksgiving. He calls us to a heart of obedience. He calls us to carry out what he accomplished for us to the world around us. He, He wants them to know what you know. He wants them to know what you know. You you get to see it. You read it in the word, you get to experience it here at church. He wants the world to know it, and the only way that they will know it is by is by somebody carrying it to them. And that's the reason why all in Christ, Christ in you, you in the church. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time together this morning. We pray that this, these truths, that these, these arguments that are presented here by the Apostle Paul for the supremacy of Christ, for the sufficiency of Christ, would be true in our hearts, that they would... Help us to embrace him by faith and also to live out what he, what he completed while he was here. We pray your blessing upon the remainder of our time this morning that you be glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen.